Today's episode of the Dad Tired Podcast is brought to you by the Relay Go. If you want to stay connected to your kids while they're out and about, maybe playing or going to the park, but you don't want them to have a cell phone, the Relay Go is the perfect way to do this. We have one at home. We use it every single day. We have a park right across the street where the kids go ride their bikes. I don't want to sit out there and watch them for hours and hours and hours because I think they're old enough that they can be responsible. But I also want to keep an eye on what they're doing. And that's why I use the Relay Go. It's a little device that they can keep on them. They can wear it as a necklace or a wristband. And it's as simple as a walkie-talkie. I can push a button on my cell phone and it will send a message to them. They can push one big button on the device and it will send a message back to me. It has real-time GPS. It also has a geofence. So if they go outside of an area where they shouldn't be going, I will know. It will alert me. And also it has emergency SOS alerts that they can send in case something does happen. It is a wonderful device. Like I said, we use it every single day at our house. No screens, no way for your kids to get in trouble on the internet, just a way that they can talk to you and you can know where they are at all times. You can get a good deal on the Relay Go 20% off by going to relaygo.com forward slash dad tired. Again, that's relaygo.com forward slash dad tired. How's it going, guys? Welcome back to the Dad Tired Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Lopes. Join me every Monday as we dive into what it looks like to be men who fall in love with Jesus and help our families do the same. You can learn more about our books, resources, conferences, and even online community by going to dadtired.com. Let's dive into today's episode. Hey guys, welcome back to the Dad Tired Show. Today is a longer episode, and so I'm going to make this little introduction short and sweet. I just want to say two things before we dive in. Number one, for some of you guys, this is going to uh, this episode is going to make you squirm a little bit. Even as I was recording it, I was like squirming sometimes, and so I just imagine there are going to be some of you who are listening and it's going to make you squirm. For others of you, you're going to be listening to this and it's going to be really refreshing because you're going to hear some things that you've been thinking or have been internally processing in your soul and you haven't really talked to anybody about it out loud. And so I just think that like hearing other people talk about it, you're going to feel like you're part of the conversation and finally putting some words to emotions or thoughts that you've been feeling. Uh, regardless of kind of what end of that spectrum you fall on, I just ask that you'd listen to the whole thing. Listen all the way to the end and then join us on Wednesday. I'm going to post a, a group uh, our post on Facebook in our closed group uh, that's titled Deep End. And I just want to hear the ways that you're processing things that stuck out to you, things that made you uncomfortable, things that resonated with you, all that stuff. So on Wednesday, make sure to go to the Dad Tired group and look for the post titled Deep End and join into the conversation. All right, let's dive in. It's going to be a fun conversation and uh, I can't wait to hear what you think. All right, see you. Kaben, so glad that you're hanging out with us on the Dad Tired Show. For the listeners who may not be familiar with you, uh, I want to give a little bit of context into our relationship before we dive too deep into some conversation. You and I have known each other for a long time. I guess what feels like a long time, even back on the like the ver- my very first year in ministry, you and I met, and this was back when I was uh, pastoring down in California, and you were part of leadership team, and I think you were in college. Is that right? Yeah, I was. Yeah. So you were in college and I was helping. We're the same age and we we were just like part of this young adults thing and we became friends. And this was well before you and I were married or had kids and all that stuff. So we've, we've had a long friendship here. And uh, I've just kind of watched from afar as you've been on your journey of just like wrestling through a bunch of stuff. And I've always resonated with the way that you process things. And so I thought, man, uh, this would be really cool just to process with you as friends and longtime friends. But 
that's a long introduction without really saying a whole lot of specifics. So I want to just before we dive in, maybe just tell us who you are, what you're doing these days, a little bit about your family, and then we'll dive into some juicy stuff. Yeah, thanks, man. It's great to be here. My name is Caben Kramer. Currently, I'm a farmer in Northern California. Um, the plot of ground that my family's been farming for four generations now is part of the native Concow territory. And so I'm stepping into a family tradition and also a much longer tradition of earth care and stewardship of the environment. And so that's what I'm doing now. It's not what I ever thought I would be doing. In fact, if you had asked me at any given point, kind of up until about three years ago, I might have punched you in the face if you told me I was going to be a farmer because it was not what I thought my life was aiming toward. That's an intense reaction. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe I wouldn't have have just thought about punching you in the face. (laughs) But yeah, you know, I've, I've kind of been through a few different things in life. I've worked in human resources, uh, in retail, big box retail stores. I worked for a financial technology startup in Silicon Valley for a little bit. We were involved in missions work overseas, and we're also involved in church planting efforts that was based here in the States and doing church planting work kind of around the world. So yeah, I I don't really feel like I have a through line of a career path. Um, I've just kind of been all over the place. You have a lot of skill sets. That's why you can do a lot of things really, really well. So that doesn't surprise me that you've done a lot of things well. Dude, just friend to friend here. I've like got on this weird fascination with, for lack of better words, like prepping. And by fascination, I just mean I've been like researching. I haven't actually prepped anything, but I was like, man, I wish I knew how to farm something. Like if things go (laughs) weird in this world quickly, I've got about four days worth of uh, supplies. And by supplies, I mean like some frozen food and some some beans in the pantry. But my family is going to be in a bad spot. And then I think of guys like you who just actually know how to like, you know, use land and 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 be part of the land and live off the land. And I'm, I'm like, Caben, can I come down and live with you if all things go south? Man, you guys are so invited if all things go sideways. <laughs> and there's an interesting thing about like, the closer I get to the land, the less I feel like I could ever consider myself an expert. Mm, that makes sense. There's something about just kind of like coming under the authority and into a side-by-side relationship with nature that puts me in a place of a, a learner uh, a lot of the time. Have you ever seen the show Alone? Dude, you are literally the third person <laughs> in three days to tell me to watch that show. Okay. Well, that should, it's a sign from the Lord, man. You need to, you need to go watch it. There's a guy on there who uh, just won and uh, I won't spoil anything for you, but I've reached out to him to come on the podcast because I watched that show and I think he's a Christian. I'm not sure, but I, I just want to talk to him about all things. But as I watched this person, I, I already spoiled some of it for you because I told you it's a guy and there are women on the show. So I'm sorry that I just eliminated some people for, for you. But this guy is just so incredible and the way that he can survive off the land. And I'm just my feeling of uh, my confidence of manhood just shrunk episode by episode as I watched him and thought, man, I just don't know what I'm doing. And I'm not sure I could ever survive out in any kind of environment that's not this. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it was interesting that I did a recording yesterday and that that show came up on that recording. 
And the commentary of the show then was, it's amazing the skill that people can have in nature. And then some of the people fail out because they crave human contact. 100%. Yeah. Like there's something about us humans that just craves and demands both, right? When we have a bunch of human contact and no connection to nature, we're looking for it. And then when we have like a whole bunch of connection with nature, but no connection with humanity, we're starved for it. Mm. I think that's pretty cool that like, yeah, we're, we, we crave both. That was really well said, man. And I agree. That's part of what I want to, I've heard him, this person that won talk about that. And, um, yeah, that's part of what I want to talk about. You know, it's really, we're deep, we're a little bit further into this than I, and we haven't got into, you know, the topics that I want to talk to you about. And I think I have yet to introduce Layla's here. Yeah, hey, <laughs> hey I'm, I'm so glad you're here I wanted too. to chime in once or twice, but I thought they don't even know who's I'm, on the line. I'm so sorry for the listeners. I'm just staring at Layla. We're like, she's nodding. <laughs> and I'm like, wait a second. She hasn't said anything. And now people are, she's going to pop in like 25 yeah. minutes in. People are like, Where the heck did she come from? Yes, she popped out of the corner. Layla's here, everyone with us. The listeners know Layla. All right, Kevin. So you, you've been in... Uh, Dude, you've just done so much in, in the ministry world. And I would love to hear where you are at on your journey as of July, whatever it is. 13th. 13th, 1, 12 p.m. Dude, catch us up, man. You've 2020. You've, you've done a lot and you've processed a lot. Tell me where you are today. There's probably five true ways to tell that story. And I feel like I have a little bit of permission to say that because apparently Jesus thought there were four right ways to tell his story (laughs) without being in conflict. So we only have a chance to tell one of the five ways. And so let me just start with something that's really current, like happening this week. And then maybe we could spool backwards a little bit from there. So I kind of had this moment where I realized that reading the Bible is a little bit traumatic for me. And what I mean by that is I've spent so much of my life studying the Bible, memorizing the Bible, like Timothy Award and Awana as a kid, memorized the whole book of Romans at one point in my life. Like I've been into the Bible for my whole life. And, you know, people in my life always thought I'd end up being a pastor because of my love of the word and my ability to kind of unpack the word for people. And the last two and a half years of being kicked out of ministry has sent me on this path of deconstruction. And I finally got to this place where I was like, man, it's been a, it's been a hot minute since I've read my Bible. What's the deal with that? And so instead of kind of doing what I had done in the past of just allowing a sense of guilt to kind of overwhelm the awareness of that emotion, and then me just kind of reading the Bible out of duty to kind of you know, abate that guilt. I just held that for a second. And by a second, I mean like three weeks. And I was like, why am I, what's going on there? And I realized like, yeah, there, there was a, there's a level of trauma of like the things that I read in the Bible. Now, my mental and emotional landscape goes back to these anchor points of experience that now carry a bit of sadness and lament and brokenness with them. Mm-hmm. And I was just been having trouble connecting with the word. And then just last week, within the last, I guess it was maybe two weeks ago, time is weird in COVID, but I, it was, it must've been a couple of weeks ago because I had time to order it on Amazon and it get here and me start reading it. But I was talking with a new friend who leads white identity workshops in Sacramento. 
And I was just sharing some of my story with her. And she said, well, you know, there's a new project called the First Nations version of 13 indigenous scholars who have gotten together, trained by Wycliffe, to go back and begin translating the Bible in English, but from a First Nations perspective. Wow. So I immediately got on the website. The lead researcher, his name is Terry Wildman. I highly recommend people looking him up and supporting his work because he's still trying to finish translating the whole Bible. So right now he's got the Gospels and Acts and Ephesians done. So I ordered them and they've come and I've been reading them. And Jared, it is like new life for me. Interesting. Because it is the truth of God's word, but it's presented in a way that doesn't carry my past traumas with it. Wow. Right, Because he says it in a new language that brings new life of the spirit into my soul. So that's just like something very present tense that is kind of a snapshot of where I'm at on my journey. But yeah, I've, I've been loving it. Yeah, dude. I, that's, uh, I saw Layla write that down. So we're going to make sure that we get that. I just wrote Wycliffe, Terry Wildman. Is that what you said? Yeah. Okay. Terry, T-E-R-R-Y, Wildman. Okay. And it's called the First Nations version. Okay. So this is like a, a, so help me understand a little bit. It's like a different, like translate, like there's, King James and there's New Living Translation. This is a, what's this one called? Yeah, no, you're exactly right. It's an authentic translation of the Bible into English and it's called the First Nations Version. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Okay, but I, so I'm like, the reason I wanted you on today and the reason I wanted to have some of our conversations is because there are stuff that I've been wrestling through personally and that Layla and I have wrestled through together as a couple that really I haven't talked about at all with anyone and especially not on the Dad Tired podcast. And because I've just been hesitant and part of my hesitancy is I'm trying to mature as a leader and Layla is helping me in that tremendously just as a man, mature as a man. And one of the things that I, I think I, I did in my youth was I would, you know, whatever I was feeling in the moment, I would just say it and I would kind of lead out of whatever I was feeling that day or that week or that month. And then what would happen is my feeling would change the next week or the next month or the next year. And some people, I may have said something in that first week that somebody really like, it, it might have like shook them or moved them or whatever. And they're like camping on it. They're hanging there and they're really like, it, it kind of rocked them in some way. And then, you know, a week later, I've moved on from that thought. And I, I'm like, well, oh, I'm not even thinking about that anymore, you know? Meanwhile, I've kind of left a wreck behind me of people who are still processing whatever I might have said a week earlier. And so I am in this season, which really is not a week or even a month. It's been maybe years where I have really been wrestling through just church in general. Like the whole idea of church, I haven't uh, lost faith in Jesus. I haven't lost faith in like God, but same feelings that you described at the beginning here where I've like, I've read scripture and it is hard for me to not bring in my experiences as I'm reading the scriptures and in some ways, and especially recently with everything that's been happening in our world, I'm just like, there have been many, many days, and I've told Layla this, where I'm just like, man, I'm, I'm kind of ready to throw in the towel completely. And I, I'm not ready to give up on Jesus, but I'm ready to throw in the towel on like the whole church thing because I just it doesn't seem to make sense and it's hurting and it's hurt me and I'm seeing it hurt other people. And again, I've been hesitant to bring that up because I don't want to say that today. And then somebody's like, oh my gosh, you know, Jared, are you... 
what's going on with you. And then next week, I've kind of moved on. So I really, I've been hesitant, but I, I want to be authentic in having these conversations because I think there are a lot of people who are having these conversations are having these thoughts and they're afraid to like say these things. And I heard you say something on your new podcast recently where you said, the church has proven itself to be ineffective during this cultural moment. Insufficient. Insufficient. I'm sorry. Yeah. Insufficient in this cultural moment. And I just would love for you to unpack that. And I'd love to kind of just start to step down this path with you again, because I think there are a lot of people who are wrestling through this stuff and they have no context or place where they can have these kind of conversations. I love that you're having the courage to say that out loud because I think you're right that a whole lot more of us think it than say it. And I think the more that we can say it, maybe the more healthy we could act on it Mm -hmm. Um, because we, at least I have a tendency to act in some pretty unhealthy ways if I don't say stuff out loud. Well, like you had said at the beginning, you started this podcast almost for your own sanity and looking for friends in this season. And I think there probably are a lot of us out there that are like... what is the relevance of the church in this moment? And is this working this whole like kind of kumbaya Christian church movement that we have, like, and it's in this face of this, the culture we live in. And um, yeah, just where, (laughs) what does that mean that the church has been insufficient? What does that mean for us as Christians? What does that mean for the church? What's not right? Yeah. And let me, just preface this part a little bit by sharing a little bit more about me. So I started questioning my relationship to power back in like 2006 in college. And I was questioning it through the lens of, at that time, I still thought I was going to be living overseas and I really wanted to live in solidarity among the poor. I wanted to move into a slum or I wanted to live in a mobily downward lifestyle And I got hung up on the fact that I still had an American passport, got hung up on this idea that like, even if I live side by side with people in abject poverty, I could still just make one phone call and walk to the airport and get on an airplane and be in relative safety. Mm. So there would always be power distance between me and the people I was trying to serve. Mm. And that really kind of created maybe one of the earliest crises in my life that was kind of the prototypical deconstruction that I'm experiencing now. So I've had this rolling question of power and power distance and abuses of power and what does it mean and who is Jesus and his power and how are we supposed to relate to his power as his followers and what does it mean for us to be his ambassadors and then how do we relate our ambassadorship to his power and authority? Anyway, so that's like a multi-spiraling conversation but I've been carrying it latently in my spirit for almost 15 years now. So when things like Ferguson happened in 2014 with the 2016 presidential campaign, with current events, um, with the daytime murder of George Floyd and other atrocities happening, every single moment brings to the surface, for me, the church's relationship to power. And the pattern that I've been witnessing over the last decade is that at every opportunity to turn towards humble confession and congregational lament and internal soul work, the modern American church, for the most part, has rejected those invitations and instead said, how can we strategically move ourselves back into a power center? And that's obviously oversimplifying a lot of complexity, 
But that's kind of the lens that I see things through. So when I said on my podcast, yeah, the church seems insufficient for the complexities of our current reality, it's because to me, the church is still in this binary tug of war with power or not in power. Are we in power? Or are we out of power? And that is just like not, I just don't see that as being a very useful conversation because on the one hand, culture by and large has moved on past the church's power or whatever the church thinks its power is in culture. And on the other hand, I'm not even sure that us pursuing power is really something that Jesus is smiling about. And especially when there's this national conversation that just says, we are in pain. Can you just listen to our pain? And the church is over in the corner saying, well, no, I, I mean, I just, I just want to make sure I still have my power. It's like, it can be really dumbfounding to me. Um, and of course, you know, I'm, I'm making a lot of really broad stroke statements right now. And, and I recognize that there's a lot of nuance to the conversation, but that nuance requires more time than we have. So yeah, the insufficiencies of the time to me seem to be the distance between the church's lived values and what I perceive to be Jesus's lived values. So where, where does the, well, so Layla, did you have a thought there? No, I just, I like have this vision as you're talking of like the church against them, like the church against culture and the church against the other people. And it's just, I think I hear what you're saying. And I, I, I guess I didn't think about it as a power versus not in power, the church being in power versus not being in power in the culture. But I, I suppose that's probably true. Again, like you said, there's a lot of nuances to this, but I just don't, what's been frustrating for me is in this crazy culture is I just don't hear, could make me cry because I get so, I get upset about it, but I don't hear a lot of heartbreak where I think there should be heartbreak. And it's so frustrating to me. I just hear a lot of like, we just, I mean, generations, we hear what the church is against all the time, what the church is against. And there's just not a lot of like, heartbreak with the people who are hurting. And we have this huge part of our body, our church, that's saying they're hurting and they're met with, that's you, this is us kind of a thing. And it just sucks. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I, and this, we're talking about one issue, but the truth is it can be applied to many, many issues, uh, right? There's, there's kind of a cultural moment that we're having, but this has been true for many cultural moments. And where I get is, I don't think this is healthy necessarily, but where I get is I just kind of want to wash my hands. Like I don't want to be associated with it. I'm curious, where are you? Like when you feel, when you start to feel that tension and you see it, what is your reaction? Like where where does that leave you personally when it comes to relationship with the church? Uh, Layla, I'm still sitting in the realness of your emotion. And I'm doing that as a personal practice for myself because I recognize that I'm not very good at relating to emotions, but I'm also generalizing it because I think it's a perfect picture for how we as the church are not good at creating space for emotions. And and what I'm telling myself is the spirit of God is alive in her emotions. That is where the spirit of God is living right now, inside the yearning of that pain. And so I'm trying to practice that discipline of holding space for that and engaging it in my own spirit and not too quickly moving past it. But I also recognize the constraints of the medium. Yeah. So 
so my relationship to the church is troubled. I believe that Jesus is the king. I believe that Jesus is the king of a kingdom. I believe that Jesus' kingdom stands outside of all other kingdoms. It stands outside of capitalism. It stands outside of communism. It stands outside of all forms of government. And yet, I also believe that the kingdom of God is designed to flourish inside and under all forms of government, that people of the Jesus way can thrive in the culture and values of Jesus' kingdom and his kingship, whether we live in a democracy or not. And I recognize that that's kind of a cultural zeitgeist right now in the Christian culture wars is this tension of, uh, you know, Marxism or critical theory or other things like that. But to me, when I hear those relationships, my response to the church is, we haven't yet moved into Jesus' kingdom. If we're still arguing about whether or not you can be a Christian and a Marxist, then we haven't fully begun to live inside of Jesus' kingdom because we still feel like Marxism is a threat to that kingdom, and it's not because Jesus' kingdom is fully outside of it and thrives fully inside of it. And I recognize just how controversial that statement is, but that kind of sums up how I respond to the church right now is that when I see these moments of clutching for power of saying, okay, we're going to carve out this territory. We're going to say, you're in if you think this way and you're out if you don't think this way. More and more, I just reject it outright. I'm like, nope, that's no. Which makes it harder and harder for me to like feel that I fit inside the church. There's definitely a sense of displacement that I experience around the North American Christian church. You know, it was, it was interesting. I I went to a lot of intense therapy as I was coming out of ministry. And one of the comments I made at one point was, I was questioning, this kind of gets into some other deconstruction things. I'm just going to go there. And I, I was questioning, like, what does it mean to be a Christian, right? If we look at the values of what it means to be a Christian today, the evangelical church would look at, you know, pray every day, read your Bible every day, tell people about Jesus. and Maybe they'll, they'll come to, they'll have their Jesus moment, right? They'll come to ask Jesus into their hearts. But if we went back 200 years, that wasn't the priority of the church. That wasn't the theological cornerstone of what it meant to be a good Christian in the world. If you go 400 years ago, it was altogether different from either the 1800s church or the 2000s church. And you can do that for every 200 year block all the way back to Jesus And you get a theologian from the 1200s and a theologian from the 1800s and you say, what does it mean to be a good Christian? They would lay out completely different visions of what it means to be a faithful follower of Jesus in the world. Mm. And so I came to this moment of like, so did they all get it wrong and we're the only ones who got it right? Right. Or did one of them have it right and we have it wrong? Or is it possible that there's space within the kingdom of Jesus for there to be a lot more expressions of what it means to be faithfully following and living out his ways that includes most of what's happened through history within the Christian church. And my therapist turned to me and he said, well, that's true for most of the institutional church, but the Christian mystics have pretty much agreed with each other for the last thousand years. And I stopped and I thought about it and I left. And a few weeks later, I was still thinking about it. And I was like, by darn, he's right. 
you know, if you look at the early desert fathers and then you look at St. John of the Cross and then you look at people like Richard Rohr, there's a really strong theological through line. And if you were to lay those texts side by side and modernize all the language and remove all the authorship, you might not be able to tell who wrote what, which wouldn't be true if you laid other theological texts side by side. And so when I hear the church struggling to maintain its own version of rightness and its own position of power in culture today, it breaks my heart, but kind of in the way that like, I don't think is very healthy right now, (laughs) if I'm being totally honest. (laughs) I think we could relate. Yeah. And you, man, I just have so many questions going through. I feel like this, as often happens, we'll need to turn into like a 15 part podcast episode. Time constraint. If people can't listen that long, they could pause it and come back to it later. (laughs) Yeah. But one thing that, and I think this is along the same lines of what you just said, Kevin, but one thing that You've also said in in the same podcast recently that I was listening to is you talked about kind of a a corral that your family had set up for like decades and decades. They had kind of set the boundaries of this is what it looks like to live right. Yeah. Rightness is in. Yeah. Everything that's not right is outside of this little corral. I I think it aligns with what you just said, but can you give that analogy? Because you'll say it better than I will re-say it. Yeah. I'm remembering back to that conversation. And by the way, these pauses for me are because I'm recognizing my own limitations. What I feel I want to do is just jump into the intellectual side of it and just ramble on. And part of my internal discipline and the soul work that I've been doing as I grow is in the way that I'm wired, the the less that I can intellectualize and the more that I can embody, the healthier I become as a person. And so that's just a a practice that I'm slowly trying to engage. So I'm bringing my body back into that space of talking about that concept. Yeah. Growing up for me was really about that corral of rightness. And there were a very few select things that were inside of that corral and a whole lot of things that were outside of that corral. But it had so much more to do than just the words that I spoke. It had to do with the friends that I made, the career path I chose, the way that I moved and acted in the world, the things that I defended or didn't defend. And most of it was unspoken. Most of it was just culturally transmuted. But it was very clear that there was a corral of rightness. And it was a totalizing narrative. It encompassed everything. and it also left a lot out. Uh, Some things that might feel really obvious now to today's culture, right? It left out healthy eating. It left out historical awareness. It left out some other things that we might say could be included in a right life. And then it included a lot of dogmatic things that maybe didn't need to be there. But that created a lot of the mental models that I carried into my adolescence and my early adulthood um, that has needed a lot of reconsideration and a lot of fence breaking (laughs) is what it's been. And honestly, right now I'm in a place in life where there's just a lot of broken fences and a few of them I've started to kind of reconstruct in ways that maybe are more useful for the long term of my life. But for the most part, it's trying to open as much pasture as I can, trusting, you know, that God's a great big God, that Our God lives beyond the horizon of my eyesight and he is doing things that are good. 
He is loving people that are amazing in ways and places that I can't even begin to conceptualize. And when I believe that about God, then I believe that he can love me and be with me and be near me even when I'm outside the corral of rightness. And that's a really dangerous thought because it can lead to some really dark places. And so for me, it has to be rooted in this sense of like, no, I actually genuinely without question believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that he really is the king and that he really is good and that he's really been to tomorrow. And because he's been to tomorrow, he knows what's best for me there. And so I can follow him into it. I think a lot of people, a lot of dads who are listening to this show, who are just trying to, you know, they come to the Dad Tired podcast because they're trying to lead their family well, and they don't feel like they're leading their family well. And so they turn on this podcast in hopes that they'll be a better spiritual leader by the time that they're done listening to an episode here. And so a lot of guys who are listening may think that sounds scary. Because in some ways, the corral feels a little bit safer and objective like I can. If I have all the things that I'm supposed to do and I'm supposed to teach my kids, then I can check off some boxes. And probably, I'm making some assumptions here, but probably that's what your parents or your grandparents or their great-grandparents or your great-grandparents or whatever may have felt. Like we want Cabin to grow up to be a Jesus-loving leader who leads his family in the same way we've led him. And I imagine in some ways it might be heartbreaking for them to hear that the corral that they worked hard to build is being, you know, knocked down. Again, I'm making some assumptions here and I'm sure that we could have a whole podcast just on that topic alone. But I'm I'm curious, you are a dad and you are a husband and you have some pretty precious kids. And so what does as a dad wrestling through this stuff right now? What does it look like for you to try to parent them and to help them on their spiritual journey? So that maybe they're not a 30-something-year-old feeling like they've got to kick down the corral that Daddy Cabin set up for them. Yeah, the corral is definitely safer, right? It's like when you go to that resort on vacation and they've got the kid play area that's all fenced off with like hired help to watch it. And you can just go drink your margarita on the lounge chairs by the pool. Right? That's like, Dude, you can't bring up that kind of stuff in the middle of COVID. That sounds amazing right now. <laughs> <laughs> but but the, the corral of rightness is kind of does that, right? Like if we draw that boundary, then we just kind of set our kids inside of there and then we can autopilot as long as they don't jump out, right? And then when they jump out, we scold them real well, make sure they're back in and then we can go back to, to coasting. Mm. I was just having a conversation yesterday with people about how do we manage technology and limits on, you know, access to YouTube and Netflix and things like that. And the way that I responded then, and I think it can be kind of generalized to what I'm doing right now. When Judah, who's now eight, he's our oldest, he, when he was like two or three years old, Jen and I had conversations and I said, you know, I, I need him to know about sex by the time he can write. Because if he can write, then he can look it up on the internet. Mm-hmm. It's no longer waiting till he's preteen for him to have access to that stuff. So as soon as he's five or six years old, he can get pretty much anything he wants on the internet. So I need to, I want to be the one to have those conversations first. And for me, it wasn't, this is also going to be controversial. For me, it's not preventative. I am under no illusion that my son is somehow not going to look at pornography or that he's not going to masturbate or that he's not going to mess around with people. My challenge is to stick with him through it yeah. because I think what we've discovered as human beings, as we've made our way through life, 
is that we've made it through those things. And in the house I grew up in, it was 100% focused on shutting down and limiting. And what that means is that when I was going through those things, I didn't have an ally who had gone ahead of me. I was alone in the dark. Mm. And it took me a lot longer to get out of that tunnel. And, you know, you conflate it on top of all the shame-based evangelical culture around sexuality. Yeah. And it was a long process out of that dark tunnel for me. So with my son, I just want him to have an ally in the darkness as he's figuring out his sexuality, his humanity, his personality. I want him to have an anchor point that he can come back to that is not defined by rightness, but is defined by presence and love. And if I can be that for him as Christ is for me, and I can continue to model for him that Christ is true presence and pure love, then as he relates off of me modeling it, maybe he can trust that that's actually who God is, right? That was part of my own thing too. Like God, like I was told that God is love, but the model I had of authority was very controlling. And so love was really conflated with control. And that took a lot of work Mm. and to come out of, right? A lot of deconstruction there. So when it comes to like technology, when it comes to parenting for me, I'm really not that focused on limits. I'm focused on his internal capacity. So we talk a lot about emotional intelligence. We talk a lot about consent. We talk a lot about, um, you know, there's thing I helped you to pay attention to. How does he feel when he starts the day without the screen? How does he feel when he starts wanting the screen, but hasn't gotten it yet? How does he feel when he has the screen? How does he feel when the screen is no longer in his day? Pay attention to those emotions. Can we begin to name them? At eight years old, he could name more emotions than I could name at 28 years old. Yeah. Because we're building those practices of paying attention. Then if I can lead him into a true and inner sense of himself, then I trust that he can work through a lot of the challenges that tripped me up because I had no idea who I was on the inside. I had about two emotions that I could relate to and they were like the only good emotions, right? Like you could be righteously angry or you could be happy. (laughs) And then all other emotions were off limits. So I was so incapacitated to be able to handle the complexity of my adulthood because I didn't know how to deal with all these different things going on which led to some really poor behavioral decisions. Anyway, so I want to teach Judah the internal capacity to know himself. And then if I can do that while being an anchor point of presence and love in his life, then I have faith because it's worked with me in Jesus. I have faith that Judah will be able to navigate a lot of, not not scotch-free, right? And that's the difference, right? We say, oh, we want to navigate without ever touching that stuff and getting his hands dirty. Now, I want him to be able to roll in the mud and get up and be like, the mud doesn't make me me. Jesus makes me me. And I'm under no impression that he's going to get to his 30s without any dirt under his nails. So how do I help him walk through it? I think when I'm thinking of the corral and how it does feel a little bit safer, just just tell me what's right. And you know, to put my kids in this corral and put all the rightness in there and just make sure all the not right things are outside of the corral and just let them kind of cruise around in there. 
it's really just a lot less distressing to me to think, like you said earlier, and Jared and I talk a lot about it because I can, in my mind, start getting a bit anxious about things. But remembering, like I think you even said the words, the kingdom is not at risk. So as we go forward and we're raising our kids and we're in these crazy culture wars and even just church wars and Christians against Christians, the kingdom is not at risk. And so what does that look like as believers and Christ followers, not church followers, not North American, you know, Christians, I guess, but what, like, that's the wrong fight, the church versus culture. And, but I think what you said, like walking alongside Judah and walking alongside our kids as we navigate through these battles, they're very personal and it's not church versus culture, but just very personal. What does it look like for Judah and for our kids to love our neighbor well? Can we do that as parents and show our kids what that looks like? And what does it look like to love the immigrant or the widow, the orphan, the foster children? What are we going to do about that? The poor and the needy and just all the people who feel like they're on the fringes and the outcasts and the people of color, like what does that look like for us instead of this corral and what's right goes in it and what's wrong goes out? What does it look like to be what God calls us to be instead of this just weird, weird just weird Christian culture we, we live in? How So just practically, how does my child see me treat the woman who told me she had an abortion? You know, or how do we treat and talk about our gay neighbor? Or, you know, at a grocery store, there's uh, the gentleman who dresses as a woman and wears makeup. Like, how are we treating them and how are we talking about them when we're home? Like those are the those are the fights I want to have with my kids, not not this other stuff. I don't know. Yeah. And I think for me, a lot of that, I also have a really active imagination. So I play a lot of that out in my mind. And on the one hand, that helps me realize my own internal biases. Mm-hmm. And so then I can start doing that internal work before it becomes a thing between my kids and I. But then second of all, it helps me. The temptation as a parent, at least for me, is to invest my hopes and dreams in my kids. But the more I work out some of these, what feels like kind of oddball thought experiments, helps me work out of my own expectations and just let them be their own human beings moving in the world and seeing my job is just moving with them as a human being in the world. You know, so yeah, so thinking about like, okay, so what happens on the day that my son brings home a boy that he's dating? And let me just sit in that thought and let me just work myself through it. Oh, I pay attention to some of the uncomfortableness. Okay, I have an issue. That's my issue. That's not a problem with my son. Right? He's eight years old, so we're years away from anything like that happening. But that's my internal issue that I need to work out. And like, I can get to a place where I can look back on that thought and be like, wow, like, I'm so glad I'm past that thought. Like if my son comes home with a boy that he's dating, like I'm going to give that young man a hug and I'm going to like celebrate them as people. And I'm going to ask good questions. And I'm going to say like, tell me your story. Tell me what led you there. Tell me about like all of your life things. Not because like, again, I'm not trying to change anything. I'm trying to be presence and love. And I'm going to trust that when those two things are put together in the kingdom of Jesus, it changes the world. So it's very different than being in power, right? The church being in power. And here we go, you know, we're we're losing with all the people coming out and it's a different view, right? Where it's like, let me 
just show love in this situation, every situation, what's the opportunity for me to show love instead of this is an assault on the power that the church holds in the culture. Here's another gay person that came out or, or whatever the thing may be. Yeah. Jesus was super unthreatened by people adding diversity to his ranks. Yeah. That's a good way to say it. Just not, not constantly being threatened. The church, (laughs) the kingdom is not at risk. Yeah. And it was something that I had to ask myself through deconstruction a lot. And I'm still asking myself frequently. And something again that my therapist taught me how to do was when I sense that urgency of control, or I begin to feel the anxiety of not being in control, to just pause and ask myself, what am I afraid would happen if I don't control the situation right now? And it revealed so much in me, so much in me where I was like, oh, I don't actually want that to be true about me. I don't want to be moving through the world in that pattern. So what would happen if I just made a different choice? If I said, I'm just going to choose to not control this right now. Is anyone hurt or is it just my own pride or my own vision of rightness in the world or whatever else? Is that the only thing that's hurt? Because if that's the only thing that hurt, I can deal with that, right? There's some things that are out of control and can hurt a lot of people like a car on the freeway, right? Well, let's get that under control. Mm -hmm. But there's lots of things that we really don't need to control that we are are really, I feel like maybe programmed or just internally really yearning to exercise control over instead of just exercising presence with. It's interesting because I think there are a lot of guys who are probably listening who in some ways this feels like a kid who has been playing in the pool and he's been looking at the deep end for a long time and it's terrifying, but he really wants to just jump in and just see what it's like. And you swim over there a little bit and you're, it's the first time your feet can't touch the ground. You like it, but you also kind of panic. And some of these conversations, especially in the Christian world is like, man, my soul seems to be longing for more. Like I want to ask these bigger, deeper questions about faith and about life and about Jesus, but they don't fit like they're meant for the shallow end and they're meant for that corral. And unfortunately what happens is when you start to ask even just asking some of the questions, you're immediately put to the side as, oh, he's an outcast or he's not fitting here or he's, we need to pray for him because he's gone off the deep end. Are you even a Christian? Are you even a Christian? Which is so crazy. Literally this last couple of weeks, somebody, people have accused me of, uh, of not being a Christian or quote unquote, I thought this was a Christian group. I thought you were a pastor. I thought you were a Christian, whatever. I don't even feel like I've gone to the deep end. I'm like, my toes are still touching. Like I haven't even said that. What I thought was that controversial stuff. But anyway, it's just, it's a hard area to explore. It's like hard in our faith to explore. And then what happens is we see, unfortunately, or maybe that's not even the right word, but we see people who have been in the Christian world for a long time. And then they start to explore these bigger questions and then we see them because they're very quickly kind of pushed out from the church or the Christian community. They're outside of the corral. And then they just kind of, I I think they just kind of lose hope altogether. Like they just completely wash their hands of church and of Christians. And like, man, I'm not a Christian. I guess I'm not a Christian. I don't hate or I don't reject or I don't treat people who aren't like me in in a particular way. So that means I must not be a Christian because I'm not, ill-willed toward, I don't know, we'll use homosexual, for example. If I don't treat them as other and bad and yucky, then are you a Christian? Not even, I, I would yes, say- Yes, you not are. E- Let me just say, yes, you are. <laughs> yeah. And, and, I, and I would say not even treating 
people bat. Like that's kind of the more you move towards an extreme version of that. I think somebody even asking the question, even just asking a question like, well, it, why do we believe that? Or what does the Bible actually say about that? Or I'm curious, like that's, something doesn't feel right. <laughs> you know, I know the whole church or everyone says this is it, but like, I want to ask deeper questions. Even just asking the questions seems to get you in trouble in the, in the faith community, which is just, man, it's just, bummer, a, yeah. it's a bummer. And you, and you see uh, these people, these lead singers of bands, and you see these uh, theologians or pastors who are, you know, who, who are claiming to not even follow Jesus anymore. And then you just kind of get the response. Well, I guess they're, you know, they're, they never believed in the first place, but it's like, I don't know if that's true. I don't think that's true. That's such a, let me, let me just, that is evidence of an abusive relationship. Mm-hmm. So for people listening, if you're thinking about moving towards the deep end and you begin to get to the place where your tippy toes are barely touching the bottom, have grace for yourself. It's okay to feel panic. It's okay to go back to the shallow end for a little while. That's safe. It's okay. And then when you venture back towards the edge and you get a little bit deeper and you begin to learn how to swim, that's okay. Just do what, do what you can do. There's no judgment from the people further in the deep end, even though there might be a lot of judgment from people further in the shallow end. Just be kind to yourself in that journey of discovery. Because a lot of the times the people stay in the shallow end because they're shamed out of the deep end, right? That's what you're just talking about. Because as soon as you begin to question the narrative, you're questioning the structure. And when the structure is questioned, it becomes an existential question. It becomes a question of existence, right? If the church didn't have power, what would the church be? And if the church doesn't know how to name itself other than being culturally relevant or culturally influential in some way, then they lose an answer to that question. And then they lose a reason for being. And so when you begin to ask the question, can you love someone who is queer and still be Christian? It's internalized as a question of, should you even exist as a church anymore? Right. And and that sounds dramatic, but at least my experience talking with pastors and other people in active church ministry, when we're able to get past the defenses a little bit, it's consistently a question of identity. And it's so it's consistently existential of if I allow my congregation to question this, how can we, you know, we lose all the framework of what used to define us. And so now we just don't exist anymore in the world, right? Like once you don't have a boundary, you don't exist. And so part of the effort for control is a yearning to continue to exist in the world and continue to matter to the world. And ironically, the stronger we hold on to some of those boundaries, the less we matter to the world. Uh, You know, we're just for the sake of time here. Unfortunately, I think we'll wrap up. But one of the questions that I have for you, Caben, and I'm not looking for anything prescriptive here. I know you're you're not trying to give anything prescriptive, but I think there are a lot of people who their soul feels frustrated as they think about being part of a church community that really that for that, for them, it looks like I show up to a building on a Sunday, I sing two songs, somebody stands up and gives announcement. We sing three more songs. There's a message and then we end with a song. And then that's supposed to kind of crank out this life that I'm supposed to live as a result. That's the Christian journey summed up. That's like, man, their soul is like, is this it? Is this it? Is this what Jesus came for? Is this the church that he was trying to build? Like, is this what we're longing for? People who are in it and the people who are not in it. Yeah. And it just, it's frustrating. It's jarring to their soul. And so they're just like, what does it look like 
to be a Christian then? If that's not right, like what does it mean to even be a Christian? I guess, what are your thoughts on that? What would you say to that? You sure we don't have another hour? <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe go for it. Just saying, uh, on my, maybe I'll break it up. I don't know. But there may be one person listening and by the time we're done talking, that's all right. Just... Hang in there, bud, that one person. <laughs> oh, man. One of the things that really opened my eyes has been this idea that to know God is to know myself. And that's not to say that I am God, but it is to say that God made me in a specific way that I find him in the wiring of my inner self. So there's this concept of true self, false self, which I'll just quickly summarize. The false self is essentially the person we think we are. And the true self is the person that God originally designed us to be. The false self comes into the world before we understand language and communication, because before we can even speak, we begin to receive childhood messages of what the people around us need from us to feel good about their place in the world. So it's not what we needed from people. It's what it's the messaging that we received from other people that they need to feel good in the world. We begin to build ourselves around those subconsciously perceived messages. So by the time we come into a sense of consciousness and a sense of self, anywhere from like eight to 12 years old, the person we become conscious of is actually our constructed false self that was designed as a survival mechanism in our early childhood so that the people around us felt good about the world and would keep us in existence. (laughs) This is essentially what it comes down to in the most animalistic way. Mm. So then, but then our true self is still laying down there, dormant inside of ourselves, waiting to be birthed, waiting to come alive. And so as we come to know ourselves, we find God. Because as we do that journey beneath the surface of our false self, we begin to explore, to look for that hidden pearl of great value, which is our true self. We find God there because that's what God designed. God made that and he wants to bring it into the world. And that's where we become co-creators with God in that internal process of becoming who he always meant us to be. As we move into our original creative design, God smiles. And I think it begins individually and it begins personally, but it is not individualistic. It's a community-based practice, or as the author Parker Palmer says, who's a Quaker theologian, he describes it as that solitary work we do together. So we need a community of people around us to take this inward journey, even though we are the only ones who can truly journey within ourselves to meet God there. Then as we begin that journey outward, we begin that journey outward with a community of people to bring some expression of God's kingdom into the world that's rooted in who God made us to be. And it becomes this authentic presentation to the world of the goodness and kindness and restoration of living under the authority and power of King Jesus and not the authority and power of man and man-made institutions. And every time I've caught glimpses of that in this world, the world says yes to it because it senses that this is something real. And this is something that didn't exist through strategy meetings or, you know, campaign raising or anything else. This came from another world. This came from something beyond the realm of human capacity. 
It came from a deeper, more mystical place full of mystery and magic and energy and life. It came from God's dimension and is birthed in the world through us, which is one of the mysteries of why God desperately yearns for us to participate in his plan of reconciliation. Despite him having all the power to, it's his joy that we would know ourselves and find him and birth from that place something that he has put there that the world will look at and say, yes. And the more that we do that together, the more we form what I would consider to be the church as this community of people who are paying attention to rhythms and patterns that aren't rooted in the structures of this world, but are rooted in the values of this other world and birth things from that other world into this world that change the world. This is good. (laughs) I'm saying like the church has been insufficient and what, why, what does that look like? But I wonder if, I'm just wondering out loud, like if the church losing its power in our culture is what is exactly what's needed. You know, not that the kingdom is at risk, but this church culture that we've created in this North American culture Is that what we need to finally force us to be the hands and feet instead of like rallying together in our corrals? But like, if that is deconstructed, if the church's power loses its power, like, is that, is that where we, what did he say? Our, our solitary work we do together, like, will this be the thing that kind of forces us to be the hands and feet and actually be a really like known for really loving people and making right the wrongs and bringing bits of the kingdom to earth. Because as it is, it certainly doesn't feel, and this is very, you know, it's a sweeping statement, but the church, it doesn't feel like is doing that very well in the context of our current culture. Maybe, maybe this is just what needs to happen. Not because we're against Christ, against God, wanting, quote unquote, God out of the schools and God out of, you know, whatever the things are that people are so worried about. If we just remember, we can, we don't need to be distressed if the kingdom is not at risk. The kingdom is not at risk. So what does that mean for us then? How do we plow forward as these wars and battles continue? What does that look like for us to be the hands and feet? outside of a powerful, mostly white church. You know, what does that look like? I think it'll be beautiful, really. Yeah. It was you be- don't have to be afraid. Yeah. It was beautiful the way you said that, Cabin. Yeah. My, my first thought was, I'm going to be like 93 by the time I start to recognize my true self. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, all right, I'm ready to go. And my life's going to be done. Well, I want to give you the final thought here, Cabin. But, you know, I, we, using that swimming pool analogy and kind of swimming out to the deep end, I imagine... Uh, for when I listen to guys like you just process this stuff so well, you do a couple laps in the deep end and you feel like you're just warming up. And then for guys like me, I feel like I did a lap in the deep end. I'm about to drown. And there's probably going to be some guys who are listening this first time they've jumped in the deep end. And they're like, oh my gosh, this word, I didn't even know this existed and it's exhausting. But I want to say all that because you uh, have a new podcast out. Um, that I've found very, very helpful as you process and you bring on other people to process all this stuff in such beautiful, great ways. And so uh, let's 
you know, wrap up our time here, but tell us a little bit about your thoughts behind the podcast, what you have going over there, the name of it, where people can find it, all that good stuff. Yeah, the podcast is called Of Dust and Divinity. So not of mice and men, but of dust <laughs> and divinity. And, you know, that's our Instagram handle. Uh, that's our website, just www.com. And then, yeah, it's on Spotify and Google and Apple and everywhere else. And yeah, yeah, the thought really is, the thought behind the podcast is that I love learning from wisdom teachers, but I've come to realize that wisdom is meaningless if there's not people putting it into practice. And I realize that I'm surrounded in this world by people who are putting wisdom into practice, right? They're putting flesh and bone on wisdom sayings. And it's changing the way that they move in the world and the way that they see the world. And I just want to listen to those stories. So, you know, the podcast is structured that there's always three of us and we're just having a conversation. I picture it like your back corner table of your favorite pub on a busy Friday night. So you don't get private seating and you just sat down with a couple of strangers and you just pick up a conversation. And on the table, there's a little slip of paper from the people who just left before you and it's has a couple sentences written on it and you just pick it up and that's like where you pick up the conversation. So every converse, every episode of, of Dust and Divinity picks up a thread from the previous episode and then it kind of goes in whatever direction those particular guests are into at the time. And it's been really meaningful for me. If that's all it is, if it's just my personal journal to the world, it's made a big impact on me already. And it's just a lot of fun to connect with people I really respect and love. Yeah, well, you're doing a great job. And it, I have a feeling it's not just you and uh, processing that alone with some friends. I, I think there are a lot of people who are chiming in and will chime in to uh, to listen and, and be part of that conversation, even from afar. But thanks, man. Thanks for jumping in the deep end with us, even just for an hour and uh, and processing through this stuff. I'm, I'm genuinely curious to see the response that we have from the Dad Tired community and just how uh, the guys who hear this and are processing. I just really believe that there's a lot of guys who are like, man, I, I really want to wrestle through this stuff and I have nowhere to do it. And so I think it's going to be refreshing just to ask these questions and get after these topics. Okay so, to ask questions. Come yeah. join us. I love the these conversations. Is not at risk. Yeah. Yeah. If you're asking these questions, come be part. Yep. Sweet, man. Well, thank you. Get back to being dad tired and farmer tired and all that stuff. <laughs> Thanks, man. Hey guys, thanks for swimming in the pool with us today. I really do hope you enjoyed that episode and uh, I would be so curious to know what you thought and just to hear you processing this. On Wednesday, I'm going to make a post in the Closed Dad Tired group and I'm just going to put as the title Deep End. And so if you just go on Facebook onto our closed group and you search the words Deep End, that conversation will pop up and I'd love to keep this dialogue going and hear what your guys' thoughts on were on today's episode. Uh, I love you guys. If you love this podcast and it's helpful for you, there are two ways that you can help us. Number one, just pass it on to a friend. If you have any dad friend that you think that would be encouraged by this, just shoot it over to him. And also remember, we are a nonprofit ministry that relies on your support. And so if you want to make a contribution to us, we would be so grateful for that. You can go to dadtire.com forward slash give and that you can make a tax deductible donation there. I love you guys. Hope this was helpful. I'll see you next week. Bye.